1: Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we rerun some of the content from our earlier years. This week we thought it would be fun to rerun the best of Risk number 13. There's a whole bunch of these Best of Risk episodes, and they're great for newcomers. We know we have some newcomers listening because last week, This American Life featured that incredible story by Shamila, which was first workshopped and presented in a very different form on risk, and Shamila's story is in this episode, The Best of Risk 13. Both versions of Shamila's story are just outstanding, and so are every other story on this episode you're about to hear. So without further ado, here is our Thursday Rerun. Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is London Music Works behind me now, and this is The Best of Risk, Volume 13. If you are new to Risk, these best of compilation episodes are a really great place to start. If you're a big old fan of Risk, these best of compilations are a great thing to share with newcomers. This is a long episode, six stories, and as is the case with most Risk episodes, some of the stories are terrifying, some are hilarious, and some are beautiful, tear-jerking. But what you're guaranteed is that you really will hear people on Risk daring to reveal things in a way that is so unfiltered, so raw and real, like you just won't hear anywhere else. Before we start, I want to give a little shout-out to one of our Patreon patrons, Taylor Mitchell. Every time someone gives us $25 or more per month at our Patreon, we like to give them a little shout-out here. Thank you so much to Taylor Mitchell. And also, if you go to patreon.com slash risk, you will find all kinds of bonus content there for everyone becoming a part of the community that helps keep Risk running. Now... We're going to hear three stories in a row without me interrupting. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the wonderful Sarah Long Hendershot. Before that, we're going to hear from Burke Hefner. Burke told a story on our Halloween episode this past year. It was told live in front of an audience, but there is sound design added to it as well. The story is called Below Zero, but before that, we are going to hear from Gastor Almonte. This was shared at the Risk Live show at Caveat on the Lower East Side, where we do the show once a month in Manhattan. You can find Gastor on Instagram and Twitter at Gaster Almonte. Here he is now with a story we call Knickerbocker Love Story.
2: All right, uh, before I begin, let me apologize in advance. Um, I got a seven and an eight year old at home. Normally when I prep stories, my wife takes them out the house. Uh, The story involves sex. They were in the way, so I had to use a code word for sex the whole time. So bear with me. So me and Claudia were in her dad's room and we about to play checkers. Good to see y'all on board, you know? <laughs> you know, you gotta understand, I fell in love with Claudia because she was the cashier at the local VIM, you know? All right, so not enough people know what that is. So, VIM is the best jeans and sneaker store in America. They sell incredible Tim's, Jordans, and knockoff jeans. It's like a Foot Locker without hope. Claudia was the cashier, you know, and I get up to the cash register and she waves me in. She said, hey yo, don't buy these. When it rains, the jeans are gonna bleed and mess up your Tims. And I'm like, yo, you just saved me $120. $100 on these boots and $20 on these three pair jeans. (laughs) I need you in my life. Stop pursuing her. Several dates to Crown Fried Chicken later.
3: <laughs>
2: Here we are. Claudia's dad's room. We about to play checkers. <laughs> now, I pride myself on being the swab chubby dude. But earlier that summer, I'd broken my arm, so I was in the cast. I didn't realize how often you use your arms when you play checkers. <laughs> you know? Like, even when you play checkers by yourself, you want the options, <laughs> you know? Keep it fresh, versatility. Woo! Took me 15 minutes to take off my shirt. <laughs> Cut the lights off, get in the bed, which I realize now is a taboo, it's a dad's bed. So no, no. But the checkers game's about to go down. <laughs> Mode is set. And right when we about to get the business, Claudia's sister starts banging on the door. She's like, Claudia, Claudia, you gotta get him out of here, dad's home, dad's home. And we in a panic. You gotta understand, this is a railroad apartment in East New York, Brooklyn. You know? I don't know if y'all been there before. If you haven't, keep it that way. It's for your own good. So there's one exit, there's one door. You know, there's no way out. You know, now it's the first floor. So she looks at me, she's like, Gastel, you gotta hop out the window. And I don't know if y'all see me, there's been a lot of milkshakes in my life. (laughs) I'm not making that jump. And she's like, it's only 15 feet. I'm like, you can't say 15 feet and only (laughs) when we talking about jumping. 15 foot drive, I'm with you only. That's the only scenario. We panicked. Thankfully, all the buildings in East New York have metal bars, because nobody would want to leave East New York or get into an apartment in East New York. There's nothing to take. But the adjacent window, it has the air conditioner, and the bars go around the AC too, so I decided to climb on top of that. You know, so I'm getting out the window, I climb on top of the bars over the AC unit, right as her dad walks in the room. I made it. (laughs) But he's trying to piece it together. He's like, yo, why are the lights off? Why are you getting dressed in the dark? Why is the window open? Why is everything a mess? And Claudia's like, oh, uh, I was gonna do the laundry, machine got a little hot, so I opened up the window, that's why the clothes is everywhere. Clever girl. And she says that right as he's at the window pulling the gate closed, but he doesn't see me because he's looking at her. Now I'm feeling confident, you know, I got away with this. Start to relax. And then two cops walk by the side of the building. Now, I don't know if you guys heard, there's problems with cops in neighborhoods like mine. We could talk after the show. But I figured it out. See, cause cops, they give great advice. I listen to them all the time. Slow down, freeze, put your hands up. Great suggestions. <laughs> and I always listen, you know why? Cause in general, when a cop is telling you something, they know more about the situation than you do. The problem with cops in my neighborhood is that they don't want to accept. And on occasion, I might know more about the situation than they do. So for example, when I'm standing on this air conditioning unit. (laughs) And you walk by the house. And you yell out to me, excuse me, sir. I'm trying to calculate in my head, how do I explain to this guy, as quickly and as efficiently as possible, yo, my man, I'm trying to play checkers with this girl. (laughs) I'm 18, she's 18, completely legal, her dad just got home He's not gonna care. He's gonna try to kill me, then I'm gonna actually need you. (laughs) How can we avoid all this? So I came up with this, this was my solution. Yo, chill. It's never good when you have to whisper and scream at the same time. <laughs> you know. But cops only got one direction with their volume. He gets more assertive, you know. He's like, "What was that, sir?" I said, "Yo, jail." <laughs> Thankfully, he had a partner. He's a younger dude. I knew him from around the way we ordered chopped cheeses together at three in the morning. He says, I got this. Goes around the front yard, comes to the backyard, and he comes up to the window. He said, what's going on, man? I'm like, yo, I'm trying to play checkers with this girl. Her dad just got home. Once he leaves, everything's cool. He nods, goes around, talks to his partner. They laugh and leave, I'm two for two. (laughs) stuff of legends here, you know. <laughs> now I'm really getting cocky, you know. Start to relax again. And Claudia runs up to the window. She said, Gaston, give me your pants. I'm like, what? She's like, you put on my dad's work pants. I need those. <laughs> the Dickies was in style back then. Now. I don't know if you've ever tried taking off your pants while standing on the air conditioning unit. 15 feet into the air with your arm in the cast. It's a bit of a challenge. You know, I kicked off my Tim's to the yard, unbuckled the pants, he slid down to the AC unit. I grabbed him with my left arm. Throw them to the window, completely miss. They fall down to the yard. (laughs) Claudia shakes her head in panic, tries to buy me time and goes inside. So now I climb down. I gotta make this drop. Hurt my ankle on the landing. Ball up the pants and I'm looking up at the window trying to figure out how I'm gonna get these back up to Claudia. Two cops come back again. (laughs) Now, the young partner, he has his arms out and he's looking at me like, yo, what the fuck? Cause he vouched for me, like he co-signed me, you know? He told his man I was cool. So I just start running over before they could start and I'm like, yo, listen man, nothing's changed. Old the cop is like, you had pants on before, sir. <laughs> everything's changed. <laughs> but I explain again, listen, I'm trying to play checkers with this girl. Her dad just got home, accidentally put on dad's pants. That's dad saw me. I'm gonna own that. But once he gets his pants, everything's cool. You tend to lose credibility when you try to make statements in your boxes. <laughs> That's advice for y'all, take that home today. <laughs> so the cop is like, I'm sorry, man, I, I gotta go to the front of the building, I gotta see what, what's going on here. So they, we start walking, and I'm pleading my case. Finally, Claudia runs back to the window. She's like, Gastro, quick, throw up the pants, he's in the bathroom. I look at the older cop and he's like, I gotta see this. <laughs> Waves me in. Now I'm Dominican. I could throw all day, hire me for your softball teams, I got you. But that's with my right arm. (laughs) Left-handed, throwing up pants 15 feet into the air. There's wind factor involved. I don't know all the math. I just know it's hard to do. Six throws in, my arm is sore as shit. Now the cops are talking shit, taking bets on the side. Young cop bet lunch money that I wouldn't make it in under 10 throws. I made it in nine. Claudia made a great catch, posed the pants in. I turn around, I look at the cops and they wave me over. I grab my Tim's and I get over there and the older cop is like, yo, we gonna wait this one out. That okay with you? I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of vested in this game of checkers, sir. (laughs) And we wait, 10 minutes go by. Claudia's dad walks out the front of the building, gets in his car and drives off to work. And they escort me to the front of the house. Ring the bell, Claudia opens. And they're like, do you know this man? And Claudia's like, Do you think I catch everybody's pants out the window, sir? (laughs) The older cop, be Slick, you know, he was like, you know, uh, I don't care that you kids wanted to play checkers, but in general, it's a good idea for you guys to be in the same room when you do so. (laughs) Admittedly, solid advice. The younger cop tried to console me. He was like, don't worry about it, man. I've been there before. You've been here before. Really? What is his life like? But they leave us to it. I go inside, and Claudia and I play a legendary game of checkers. That's not the ending, but I do deserve a clap for that. <laughs> you, know, you know, a few years later, you know, me and my dad uh, own a lot of property in uh, East New York, but uh, one of the buildings had a break-in. My dad uh, gets there first, so I come in after work, and he's already talking with the cops about the break-in, and I see him talking with the captain in the background, and I get up the stairs, and who do I see? but my chopped cheese partner, a much older, younger cop. He looks at me, he's like, yo, man, you look good. And I'm like, I know, I got pants on. (laughs) Oh, and I hear my dad complaining in the background. They start making their way over to us. My dad's you know, spazzing. He's like, man, I can't believe we still getting break-ins. I thought the neighborhood was getting better. You know, are we over these type of things over here? The younger cop winks at me and then looks at my dad. He's like, man, you wouldn't believe the things I seen. <laughs> Thank you.
1: I can't now, I gotta finish my pants. Pants! For
3: my pants. Pants! Nice pants.
4: Pants! Take your fucking pants off!
3: Pants!
4: I'd like to know what you're doing with all that chicken in your
3: pants.
2: Why do you ask? Pants! 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 Pants. How can you watch that stupid shit? Turn it off! Pants!
5: That's much better.
6: Why don't we play a little game of checkers just to unwind? (laughs) Mushers will sometimes mix, they'll breed their huskies with wolves because a husky that has a little bit of wolf in it makes a really, really strong sled dog. But you have to be very careful because they'll push themselves so hard. They're such dedicated runners that if you don't watch out, they will actually run themselves to death. Our plan was very simple. We had three drivers, we had two pickup trucks. If we drove in one truck for four hours, we switched to the next truck for four hours, and then we slept in the back in the camper for four hours, the three of us could drive nonstop Two drivers at the wheel, one person sleeping at all times, and we could make it to our destination in 48 hours. We were in Missoula, Montana. Our destination was 2,500 miles north in Alaska, and we left on the evening of January 7th. It was the dead of winter. Of the crew, our strongest was Cove. He was a real Alaskan. He was born and bred, raised there his whole life. He was half Eskimo. He lived in a little village called North Pole that was just outside of Fairbanks, Alaska. drove a big old Dodge truck, you know, V8, four-wheel drive. He was definitely our strongest. And if it could break, Cove could fix it. I fell somewhere in the middle. I spent a lot of my life in Alaska, but the past several years I'd been in Montana in the lower 48, so I'd kind of gotten soft. You know i used to be a firefighter but now like my winter gear it wasn't alaska gear anymore my winter gear was was like an evening of sledding you know and third was mark skinnier and paler than i am he was an amazing driver he's gonna drive all night but unless it came down to like really obscure music trivia or mathematics he was not going to be the guy to get us out of a pinch I had one advantage over the other two, is that I was the only person that had driven the Alcan before, the Alaska-Canada Highway. But I had driven it in the summer, and as it turns out, winter was a, a very, very different experience. In summer, it's like, it's RVs and motorcycles and vans, and their are little, like, homemade signs at the side of the road for local goods, and uh, the gas stations all sell t-shirts for towns that are, like, named after the mile marker on the Alaska Highway because they their only claimed anything. In winter, all of that kind of falls away. And when we left, it was quite warm. It was barely below freezing in Missoula. But as soon as we started out, temperature started to drop. And by the time we hit Alberta and we were rolling over like sage sagescape forever, it started to snow. The further north we pressed, the more it snowed, the more the temperature dropped. When people hear you're from Alaska, they ask you what it's like, and I always try to explain, and I feel like I always kind of fail, and the thing that I can't explain very well about Alaska is how how vast it is. It's the scale of how big that world is and how small the imprint of humanity is on it. The legacy of mankind just gets smaller and smaller. The further you go north, the cities get smaller and smaller, until they're not cities, they're towns, and then they're not even towns. They're like... Two roads cross and it gets a name. And then even that goes away. And eventually even the asphalt surrenders. There's one road that goes to Alaska and this part of it is dirt. It's a two-lane dirt thread. And in winter, you're the only person on it. And beyond it is the Northern Rockies. It's 80 million years old and it's the backbone of the continent. And if you get far enough into it, it's just like you can almost feel what that timeline means. And it's humbling, and it's awesome, and it's terrifically isolating. I really like that loneliness. I, I waste so much of my life like worrying about like what I'm going to do, and what I mean, and what I'm going to accomplish. When you get out there, all of that just kind of falls away. Actually, it's so lonely up there, they say that uh, you're required by law to pick up hitchhikers in northern Canada. The other thing that changes between summer driving and winter driving is that the daylight goes away. Summer, it's like open till midnight, the sun's up at 6 in the morning. By winter, the gas stations that we were finding were, they were opening at maybe 11, and they were closing at sunset, which is 3.30 in the afternoon. Every mile that we pressed north, it just got colder. We stopped at a mini mart in Watson Lake and we tried to do a little bit of repair and I had to take my gloves off to do it and I was trying to thread this really small nut. Within a couple of minutes, my knuckles seized up. It was too cold for me to actually close my hands anymore and I couldn't actually feel whether the nut and the bolt were even in my hands. I had no sensation. The last radio report we'd heard had said that the temperature had dropped to minus 43 degrees, adding the wind chill into it That drive was about negative 75 degrees. When you stepped from the truck, the wind would rip the heat from your body. About two days into the trip, we reached a gas station early in the morning. And this gas station didn't open until noon, which would mean we'd lose four hours if we just waited around for it to open up. But we decided to press on. We charged up another 100 miles or something. There was another dot on the map. We pressed on, and a couple of hours later, we came to the next gas station. This gas station was also closed, but it was not closed for the night. This gas station was closed for the season. Our choice was to turn around, to try and go back to the gas station that we had left earlier. If we could reach it after dark, it'd be closed. So we'd have to spend the night there in the parking lot and we'd have to spend the night there with the engines running if we let the engines get cold they would never start again and our other choice was to press on to Phoenix River and I was pretty sure that I remembered Phoenix River having a gas station Cove and Mark had never driven it so they had no voice in it the decision was mine and I decided that we should press on and we drove for another hour or two of daylight and the sun went down and we Drove into the night and it got colder. Our gas rocked down, quarter, eighth of a tank. I had a Chevy S10, you know, on a like two wheel drive with the big boxy camper on it. But it was one of those ones where the gas gauge kind of rocks with the gas in the tank. And it got to the point when we go around a turn, the needle would rock all the way down until it was resting on the pin below empty. And you just watch it until you straightened out again and it would creep back up. And we stopped and we took our spare gas cans out and we poured our spare gas into the tanks and we kept going around every bin. You were just like waiting for some sign of Phoenix River and it seemed like forever, but that sign came. We were coming around a bend, and there was a little sign and there was a little turnout at the side of the road and there was a couple of picnic benches buried in snow and then the road curved away and that was the end of Phoenix River there was no town there was no intersection there was no gas station because Phoenix River was a campground there wasn't even a shed to shelter in at Phoenix River it was a dot at the side of the road we pulled the trucks over we had two trucks on empty there was no chance of reaching a next town wherever that might have been it was pitch black Alaska night black No moon. No oncoming headlights. It was so cold that even the semi-trucks had given up the road hours and hours ago. The whole drive at that point had been like this. The game was like, were we going to make it? We're going to make it to Phoenix River? Would it be around the bend? Would the gas hold out? And when we pulled over and I stepped out of the car and out of like this little heated bubble, it was the first time that I actually asked what not making it means there'd be no starting a fire. I mean, over the berm of the road, it was six feet of snow covering everything. I remember thinking, if we tore the foam and the rubber out of the seats, I wonder if we could get them to burn. We decided at that point, the only thing left to do was to siphon the gas out of the big truck. We'd pour it all into my little truck that got better mileage. The three of us could try and pile in there. We'd take the empty gas cans. We'd try and press ahead, reach a gas station fuel up, fill up the tanks, and come back for the dodge. I went back to wake up Mark. It was his sleeping shift. He was in the little camper in the back. I opened the door. We had two sleeping bags and a couple of wool blankets, and he'd pulled all of them over him completely, his face and everything, and he just let a a little teeny breathe hole. His breath was rising out of this little hole. His white breath rose up, and it got about halfway between the top and the bottom of the camper and it flattened out and there was just this white undulating blanket of breath floating in the middle of the camper and when I opened the door the breath poured out of the truck and down the bumper and he woke up shaking wildly and started pulling on his winter clothes and cove and i went and we got the plastic tube and we started shoving the tube down into the dodge to siphon the gas out and we were taking turns sucking the gas up through the tube to get it started when gasoline hits your mouth at any time it's bad when gasoline that is 43 degrees below zero hits your mouth it is a searing burning pain it's taking layers of flesh off of the inside of your mouth and we'd fill our mouths with the gasoline and we'd spit and we'd hold the little tube over the gas cans and it would start to gurgle and then the gas would flow back into the tank. We couldn't get a seal. There wasn't enough gas in the tank to get a clean seal so we had to try again and again and we're taking turns filling our mouths with this gasoline and I'm starting to process what it means to be at the side of the road in Canada and... The law about picking up hitchhikers is because if you're at the side of the road in the middle of the night in Canada, something is really wrong. This is a place where people die for making really small mistakes, for overestimating themselves, for underestimating the world that they're inside. I was watching Cove suck searing freezing gasoline in his mouth and retching and hacking and pouring the tank and sucking it again mark finally came out from the back of the truck and his winter gear is worse than mine and he just stood there shaking silently and watching us because there was nothing else that he could do and the fear that i'd been hiding really really well transitioned into just an awareness of responsibility because i was the one who put us there we could have stayed at the gas station for three hours and fueled up. And I should add that this 48-hour goal meant nothing. It was a number that we'd picked because we wanted to get there as fast as we could. We would no reason to keep pressing on. I'm watching one of my friends gag as he's burning the flesh up the inside of mouth and the other one shaking and I look up and at what must be the horizon that I can't see because it's pitch black, I think I see a little glow and then that little glow disappears and then a few moments later it comes back again but it's a little bit just a little bit bigger in true dark where there are no oncoming headlamps and there are no street lights in all the way dark, dark, in a snowstorm headlights will illuminate all of that snow in front of them. Way before you see the headlights you see this orb of light. Someone was coming. It would get bigger and it would disappear into some valley and it would come up again brighter than it was before and it was getting brighter and brighter and it was a semi. First of all, no one else would be on the road but also it was so bright by the time it got to us and it finally comes wheeling around the bend. It's like Angels aglow are fucking coming to save us and we're waving our empty gas cans and we're like in this elated moment and it's finally pulling up to us and it rolls right past it doesn't slow down it's sauce there's nothing else to see but us with our gas cans at the side of the road I had stayed very calm I was very scared but I had stayed very calm, and a lot of that is that I was kind of leaning on Cove's competence, knowing that he would figure out something that would get us through, I think, in the same way that Mark was leaning on mine. When that truck rolled past us, Cove lost it. He started screaming and yelling, and he had his gas cans in hand, and he started chasing after the semi-truck into the darkness that he could not possibly catch. I mean, it was going 35 miles an hour in the middle of a snowstorm, but still, there was no hope. And if it ignored us at the front of the road, there's no way it's going to see us in our rearview mirror because, you know, the semis kick up this huge cloud of turbulence and snow behind it. And he just started running and screaming into this cloud. I didn't know what to do, so I started chasing after him After a few hundred yards, the truck disappeared, and Cove stopped running, and I caught up with him, and when the clouds settled, I could see another little glow. But this one wasn't moving, and it wasn't the truck. Phoenix River is, as the name would imply, built on a river. First, There's the campground and then the road curves away following the bend of the river and the river bends all the way around and eventually it comes back almost to the same spot and when it curves back around, there's the Phoenix River gas station. And the glow was its sign because it was open. That hundred yards that we ran brought the gas station into sight. I don't know how A husky with a little bit of wolf blood could run itself to death without just backing off a little. But I don't know why we didn't stop and wait for three hours to get gas in a station we knew was open. What I do know is that I have never felt more alive than I did walking up to that gas station.
7: is the worst. Moving is one of those occasional necessities in life that depletes you in just about every possible way. Even when it's a good move, it's still uprooting your life like that is always a risk. And I was moving as a single mom with a two-year-old And I hadn't figured out how to single parent the way that I wanted to in Boston where I was living. And so I decided to take a couple years off and go to the small town in upstate New York where my parents lived. And I had rented the top half of a lovely little painted lady, Queen Anne Victorian. And I had spent the entire day hauling boxes from my rusted Ford Escort and the little U-Haul trailer I was pulling behind it up the long, narrow stairway to our adorable new apartment. I was on the last load. I had a laundry basket full of toys on one hip and my very tired two-year-old son, Shane, on my other hip. And I paused for a minute outside the house and I looked at the porch stairs and I thought, can I really go up these stairs one more time? And I happened to look around and I caught up in the second floor window of the house next door, the most angry, twisted, furious, frightening face just glaring down at me. And if I had not been forewarned about this person, I think I would have peed myself. (laughs) But... Earlier that day, the neighbors on the other side had come over to introduce themselves, and about 30 seconds into the conversation with them, the wife had leaned over and like half-whispered as if he could hear from two doors down, have you met old Bill? And the husband said, do yourself a favor, keep clear. And the wife said, he's the town crank. And the guy said, you'll see. And we did see, we were moving in in spring, and all through that spring and summer, we saw Bill being Bill. Woe to the person who walked their dog past his house and the dog peed on his lawn, or you know the guy that checked the meter made too much noise, or the guy that handled his garbage cans was too rough. Every interaction with other people was anger, anger, anger. But we never really interacted with him. His whole house was kind of clamped down. He never opened his windows. He never opened his doors. What the neighbors didn't know when they told me about Bill was that after a very chaotic and dysfunctional childhood, I found myself at age 28 really not very good at connecting with people in any real kind of way. And I was glad Bill was like he was. And I wished all the neighbors were like Bill so that... (laughs) I would never have to interact with them. (laughs) But not so much Shane. My son Shane was not having a chaotic and dysfunctional childhood. He was having a very positive childhood. And he, by the time we'd been there for six months or so, he was two and a half, he started to notice Bill and make little overtures towards him. And it was amazing to watch from somebody who didn't know how to do that. It was amazing to watch this kid. So he started out by, we would be playing in the front yard, and he'd be looking at Bill's house. And if he saw him in the window, he'd wave to him, and Bill would, like, slam his curtains shut if he ever got caught watching. And then later on in the fall, we'd be outside raking the leaves, and Shane would kind of just walk over until he was in front of Bill's house, and he'd be kicking the leaves over to our yard, or he'd pick up a few leaves in his hands and come put them in our pile. And then winter and the snow came and Shane had his own little toy shovel. And I'd be shoveling the walk and he'd be, you know, throwing a couple of snowflakes. I'd look up and he'd be over trying to shovel Bill's front walk. Shortly after that, we were making muffins. And Shane said, I want to take a muffin to Bill. And I said, All right, okay, if that's what you want to do, we'll, we'll do that. Here, put it on this plate, and we'll take it over. So this was his deal. So I stood on the sidewalk, <laughs> and I watched. And this little kid, he's not even three yet, and he's got it on the plate. He's trying to balance it and catch it every once in a while. And he gets up, he goes up the, like, three front stairs, and he reaches up to the doorbell, and he rings it. And Bill comes and answers the door. And I'm watching their interaction. They chat for a minute. And I was happy to see that Bill took the muffin. So Shane comes back and he's all excited. He says, Bill says, we can come back for the plate tomorrow. And can we come in for tea? And I was like, oh, okay, sure, we'll do it. It's fine, (laughs) I don't want to hold my kid back, all right? So (laughs) the next day, We go over in the morning, knock on the door, Bill answers instantly. We walk in, his house is immaculate. It's not normal immaculate, it's like OCD immaculate. And there's not a lot of stuff, it's very spare. But not spare because he doesn't have any money, it's spare because he just doesn't want to have a lot of stuff in his house. He smells like shaving cream, and I notice a little piece of tissue with a circle of blood on his neck, so obviously he 'd cleaned up for company and we, uh, we, he leads us into the kitchen, and he 's got a little four top table there with aluminum chairs and uh, we sit down and I have some awkward small talk with him because i 'm bad at small talk, and he 's bad at small talk. Shane has brought two cars and he 's driving them around the table you know. <laughs> And Bill just abandons trying to have small talk with me, and he picks up his spoon, and he puts it down in front of Shane's car. And he says, You're going to have to turn around. There's been an accident here. (laughs) Uh, A log truck has spilled its load. And that was it for Shane. Really, from that moment on, they were the best of friends. And over the next several months... We spent quite a bit of time with him. I mean, honestly, we kind of folded our lives together. Shane and I would have dinner, and I would make some extra. I would take it over to him, and sometimes he would do the same for us. I would help him if he had errands that he needed to run and so on, and Shane was very, very excited to be friends with Bill. He didn't want to talk about himself very much. But I did find out that he was a widower. His wife had been dead for 17 years. And he had two daughters who lived right there in town, like literally a few blocks away, that wanted nothing to do with him. And I tried to talk to him about, yeah, what's up with, you know, and he would just stiffen up. And I could tell from his body language that he didn't want to go there. So we never, I never found out what it was. Problem I started to have was that I never intended to leave the city permanently. I knew eventually I was gonna go back. I'm a professional musician. I couldn't really you know, make a living in Watertown, New York as a musician. I decided it was about time to tell Bill that I was thinking that in the next few months we would be leaving. I went to tell him, Shane was asleep, and I told the neighbors downstairs that I was going next door. He took it pretty hard. I mean, he clammed up, but he just kind of sat there and stared. And I realized that he was staring at the one piece of art that he had on his wall. And that was one of those free drugstore calendars that he had tacked to the wall over the kitchen table and hanging next to it was a black marker on a piece of twine. And Bill had a routine Every night after he ate his dinner, he would wash his dishes, dry them, put them away, go put on his pajamas, and come back out and make a perfect black X over that day. And I was looking at the whole month leading up to the day I was sitting there and I saw all those X'd out days, and very neatly tucked into the corner of the shelf underneath was a stack of about 12 calendars from prior years. After that, I got a call from Bill. I'd been gone all day long, and I got home. There was a message on voicemail from him on the answering machine. It said, can you come and get me? I'm at the emergency room. I've been here all day. So I jump in the car. I go over to the emergency room, and there he is. He's in his pajamas. He's been there for seven hours He said I wasn't feeling well this morning so I called an ambulance and I didn't have, I had my pajamas on so I don't have my wallet and I couldn't pay a cabbie and I called my daughter but she never showed and I didn't know how to get home so I gave him a ride home. The second time that happened, this young doctor came over to me and he said, listen, I wanna talk to you. I know Bill doesn't have any family to speak of but I know that he's fond of you and I want you to know that I think that he is mismanaging his diabetes on purpose for attention. I gave the doctor my number, and I said, you know what, if there's anything I can do, let me know. All I can do is encourage him to be healthy and talk to him and try to keep an eye on him. And so that's what I did. A little bit after that, Bill called me up one night again. Shane was asleep, and he said, come over, I've got to talk to you. So I went over. And he says, I've been thinking, I could move to Boston with you. It sounded like an outlandish idea to me, but I hadn't seen him that happy in a long time and I didn't want to just shoot him down. So I said to him, you're going to sell your house because you can't just leave it empty. You'll have to find all new doctors and get your prescriptions switched over. And he knew very quickly that it just wasn't going to happen. He was about 78 years old, and he'd lived in Watertown his whole life. He wasn't going to pick up and move to Boston. A couple days later, he called me again. And I went back, and this time he was old Bill. He was angry, He was mean. He said to me, you don't belong here. You need to get out of this town. You're 29 years old and you're not getting any younger and you got nothing going on. I knew he was grieving. I didn't want to engage him. So I just said, all right, Bill, thanks for letting me know how you feel. Good night. The next morning, Shane woke up and he really wanted to go see Bill. I didn't really want to go see Bill. But he really wanted to see Bill. And he was at this stage in his development where he would say your name over and over again until you acknowledged him. I don't know if any of you know any toddlers. So if I was talking to somebody and he had something important to say, or if I was on the phone, it was like, mom, 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 mom. So all morning, he's like, Bill, I want to see Bill. We have to go see Bill. So if I was like, okay, fine, we'll go see Bill. Right? After breakfast, we'll clean up, we'll go to see Bill. We walk downstairs and out the front door, and it's autumn now, and it's very, very windy, and the wind is blowing my hair all over the place. And Shane's so excited, he just runs across the yard and right up Bill's back stairs and into his back door. And I thought, that's weird, because Bill never leaves his doors open. And then I hear loud music coming out of Bill's house. And all his windows are open. I'm like, okay, he never opens his windows. He never listens to loud music. This is making me really uncomfortable. So I run up the stairs, and I have my hand on the doorknob, and I hear, Bill, 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 Bill. And I open the door, and there is my three-year-old on all fours with his face inches away from Bill's purple mottled face bill was a big man and he was had fallen in between the living room and the kitchen and he took up almost the whole length of the room i saw that his mouth was wide open and his eyes looked like they were looking up at his glasses which had flown onto his forehead when he had fallen over like a felled tree and there's shane Bill's arms were all splotched with lividity, which is what happens when you've been dead for a few hours. And the wind was blowing his curtains. And Roger Miller, King of the Road, was like at volume 10, like echoing through the whole room. And it was one of the most surreal moments of my life, and I felt my stomach just clench up like a fist. And I kind of panicked. I ran over to Shane, and I picked him up, And I said, Bill's sleeping. Don't wake him up. We got to get out of here. So (laughs) I had to undo that later. (laughs) Those of you who don't have experience with children, we never equate death and sleep. Really a bad idea. So anyway. (laughs) You're going to sleep now, honey. No. I took him over to the next-door neighbor. I came back over. I turned off the music. I called an ambulance, and he had his um, two daughter's phone numbers right there next to the phone. And I called the first one. There was no answer. called the second one, and a woman answered right away. And I said, this is your father's neighbor, and your father's passed away. And I pictured her showing up, like, after he was on a gurney under a sheet. But she got there before the ambulance did, like, literally within two minutes. You know, now she shows up. She goes rushing over to him and starts trying to pry the wedding ring off his finger. After the ambulance came and they drove him away, I stood on the sidewalk next to her, watching it go, and she turned to me and she said, "'Don't think you're going to get anything.'" So, Shane and I dealt with Bill's death in very different ways. Shane had a lot of questions, questions that were difficult to answer, and as he got older, the questions got a little more complicated, and I tried to cobble something together for him, but by the time he was six years old, he had a full-fledged existential crisis I was driving around, we were doing a whole bunch of errands, it was raining out, we had to grab some lunch real quick before we went on to the next thing, and we stopped at a gas station and grabbed a couple sandwiches, and we sat in the car to eat, and the rain's coming down the windshield, and uh, I take a bite of my tuna sandwich, don't get tuna at a gas station. (laughs) I take a bite of my tuna sandwich and I say, oh, this tastes really not so great, I hope I don't get food poisoning. And Shane instantly lunges across the seat, grabs the tuna sandwich out of my hand and takes a giant bite of it. And I said, why did you do that? And he said, if you die, I wanna die. And furthermore, (laughs) why are we even here if we're gonna die? What's the point? And I thought, all right, I got to give this kid something. And you know what? I didn't have heaven to give him. To me, I'm sorry. Heaven is a cop-out. I don't believe in it, and I wasn't going to lie to my kid. So what I said to him, I took his beautiful little face in my hands, and I said, do you not go to the carnival because you have to go home at the end of the day? And he kind of stared at me. And he stopped asking questions about death from that moment on. He did. (laughs) Me, in the months after Bill's death, I was filled with guilt and self-recrimination because that doctor had called me up after Bill died and said, He took a fatal dose of insulin. And I thought, why? Why did you do that to that man? He had his ordered life, and you came in, and you interjected yourself, and you brought him to the point where he'd kill himself. And the more I thought about it, I thought, you know what? That is really arrogant to think that you can make that kind of decision for another cognizant adult human being. Bill was the one who opened the door. He opened the door to a child. He let some love in his life. He spent the last six months of his life or so probably happier than he had ever been. You've gotta go through life detaching yourself from outcomes. That's what I finally figured out. You have to be a decent human being. You can give compassion and companionship and care to the people who are right in front of your face. And whatever happens after that, it happens. We are not in control of it. And it took several more years for me to fully realize the extent of the healing that raising my son was for me because I was able to relive the parent-child dynamic in a way that was right and healthy and nurturing. And I came out of it like, like a kid that had been raised right. And my son is grown now and I still think about all the lessons that I learned from him. But I really, truly, I think the number one lesson that I learned was go to the carnival Go to the carnival. Thank you.
1: This is Risk. This is the Jane Mutiny Behind Me Now, the lead singer of which is Sarah Long Hendershot, who we just heard telling the story called The Carnival that was recorded the last time Risk was in Toronto. And before that, a story that Burke Hefner told at a Risk Live show in New York with sound design added by John LaSala. And before that, an interstitial called checkered pants by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Okay, let's move into the second half. Our our last three stories on this best of risk, number 13 compilation. It's so hard to narrow down these compilations because there's so many great stories that are shared on the show. And also some stories are way, way too long. There was a story called The First Times by DK Anderson, which was probably the most talked about story that we've run in the past several months, but that one was just way too long to fit on this episode. But if you're interested, you can find it on an episode called Out of the Blue. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the amazing Melina Williams-Hawes. But before that, a story by Rich monahan one of the funniest stories we've heard in a long time. A story called Grapefruit by Rich Monahan. But before all that, we're going to hear a remarkably emotional story. By Shamila. This was shared the last time that Risk was in Baltimore. There are abusive situations in this story, just to give you a heads up on that. So here she is now. This is Shamila with a story we call Home Away from Home.
8: So here I am, a pink girl in my own Barbie world, otherwise known as Bethesda, Maryland. I'm a seventh grader at the very exclusive and preppy Holton Arms School, and I like to rebel by wearing bright pink boxer shorts underneath my uniform skirt. I always, in a weird way, enjoy arguing with my brothers about whether we should watch The Empire Strikes Back or Ghostbusters on the VCR, which we case from HBO. I have a Siamese kid named Coffee and about four friends. So you could say I'm not the most popular girl in the world, but I wasn't a nerd either. I was just somewhere in the middle. I loved books. And I was sheltered. I was very overprotected. I was not allowed to talk to boys. My parents would not drop me at the mall. And I still played with my dolls sometimes. So I was that kind of seventh grader. But the thing that kind of bothered me was that I was Pakistani-American and my mom had an accent. And my name is Shamila, but I always used to wish that my name was Shannon, or Sharon, or even Stacy from the babysitter's Club, because there were no Shamilas out there. This was kind of like, you know, just the good stuff, the normal stuff, even the being forced to take tennis lessons was the normal stuff. Then there was the weird stuff. Every summer, my parents would schlep us all to Pakistan, where they're from. Now. I got tired of going every summer, I wanted to go to camp like everyone else, but we had to go. Pakistan was where we got used to mosquitoes, we got used to heat, it's really hot there, like think about Arizona, Texas heat. We got used to the best Coca-Cola in the world in these bottles, if you've ever had Mexican Coke, it's like that, it's really good, getting our stomachs upset because the water is not good. Having a grandmother that doesn't speak a word of English, so you can't really communicate with her. Having cousins who mock your American accent because you sound silly to them. Having your books made fun of. And then I had this very weird aunt, my mother's sister, Sheila. My mom, Hannah, is very vivacious. She laughs a lot. She uses her hands a lot. She has a lot to say. But my aunt, Sheila, is very monotone, very mean always make me eat my vegetables. Not a nice person. (laughs) My dad, Afzal, is very tall and very stoic. But my uncle, Ali, he's weird. He has this mustache, and he's always trying to hug me, and kiss me, and grab me, and get me away from my mom. Even as a little child, I just remember thinking, creepy. When I'm seven, we're in Pakistan, And the power goes out in my grandfather's huge, sprawling bungalow, because there's a thunderstorm outside. And what do my brothers do? And my cousins, they all run out of the room and leave me there. So I'm crying in the dark, and my uncle comes in with a candle. Creepy uncle. In the flickering candlelight, he holds my hand, and we walk down the stairs. And he turns to me, and he goes, who's your father? I'm seven years old, and I'm thinking, what a strange question. But then again, whenever I would go there, they would ask me strange questions, like, do you like America or Pakistan better? So I was used to the weird, strange questions. So I said, my dad's name is Avzal, and he works in Washington, DC. And he looks at me, and he says, no, I am your father. And I kid you not, thunder went off in the background, and I was like, whoa. (laughs) So I was disturbed. So I went to my mom the next day, and I was like, mommy, he says that he's my dad. And my mom's like, he's crazy, stay away from him, don't listen to him, why do you always go and sit with him? Stay away from him. So I'm like, okay. And then I come back to the US and I tell my dad this happened with my uncle and my dad's like, look at your passport, whose last name is that? And I'm like, yours? He's like, that's right. So I want you to forget that this ever happened. Okay, forget him. So I'm like, okay, I will. But then we go back to Pakistan again. And every time we would leave, there'd be these weird fights between my mom, Hannah, and my aunt, Sheila. And this time, this fight escalated, and both of them start grabbing my arms. And one's pulling this way, and the other's pulling that way. She's my daughter. No, she's my daughter. No, she's my daughter. And I'm just kidding, like, what's happening? I remember telling the servant, because everybody has servants there, I was like, they don't have a daughter, they have three sons, so they want me. Isn't that strange? And the servant just said, hmm. And then we left Pakistan early that year. We came back and my mom said, we're not going to go back again. And I was like, good. And then next year, I'm 11 years old and I'm about to put on my jacket and go for a ride around the cul-de-sac in our neighborhood. And I overhear my parents talking and arguing in the kitchen and I hear something about adoption. She was adopted and her parents and adoption. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Are you saying what I think you're saying? And they both kind of stopped and looked at me. And I remember my stomach just falling, and I got on my bike, and I rode around the neighborhood, and I was like, it's true, they adopted me. So, a little bit of backstory. My mothers are both sisters. My mommy, my mom, Hannah, came here in 1970 as a young bride, married my dad, obviously, who was a student at the University of Pennsylvania. They were trying to have a baby, and they couldn't. My mom told her family that it was her fault. She was barren. But it was actually my dad's fault. She wanted to protect him so she couldn't tell. So her younger sister, Sheila, promised her, the first baby I ever have, I'm going to give her or him to you. Sheila gets married, has a first child, gets a boy. And the whole family's like, no, 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 you can't give a boy away because you know boys are really important in that part of the world, like inheritance and money and land. Like, boys, well, that's your only son? You can't give him away. They tell her, come back next year, we'll have another child for you, like a Big Mac will deliver one. <laughs> so the next year, there's another child, and it's a girl, and that girl's me. My mom, Hannah, joyfully takes me and brings me back to the US and tells everybody that I was born abroad. She doesn't even tell people, except very close family members, that I'm her sister's child. She pretends that I'm hers from the very beginning. I didn't even know, they were supposed to sit me down when I was 13 and tell me nicely, but you know, people started letting things leak out when I was seven, so that's how I found out. At this point, you would think that we're not going back to Pakistan again. Oh no, we are. (laughs) The next year, when I'm 12, mom and I go by ourselves. We're up in the mountains in our family home, and we're just enjoying ourselves with the whole family. And now that I know that my aunt and uncle, Sheila and Ali are actually my birth parents, they're so nice to me. I'm having these weird thoughts like maybe I'm a princess and they will never make me make my bed again and they won't make me clean my room and I could live with them and they would be so cool. So naturally when my new mom slash aunt Sheila says to me, hey, we're going back to Peshawar, which is the city they're from. We're going tomorrow. We're going to be gone for about a week. We're going to go look at You know, the boys' school, and we'd love it if you would come with us. You can meet all of our friends. You can see where they go to school. You can see our house. What do you think, Shemila? Do you want to go? I'm 12 years old. I'm like, sure. I just want to come back by the time Baba and my brothers come from the U.S. because they were going to join us. And she's like, okay, we'll bring you back next week. So I get in the car. Off we go. We visit all these different relatives that were all over the country. Pakistan's about the size of... Texas and maybe Delaware combined or something like that, so It's not a big country you go up and down the country visiting all of my birth father's family members and after a while I'm like when are we going back? But I don't ask and then it's mid-July Then the end of July. It's the beginning of August. I'm like when am I going back? And he looks at me and goes you're not And I'm like, what do you mean I'm not? He goes, you're not going back to America. You're staying here now. And I'm like, why? And he's like, because we are your parents. We are your family. And it's time for you to stay with us now. America is a bad place for a girl to grow up. They do drugs. They go to dances. They wear short skirts. You're not going to do any of that. You're going to stay here and be a proper girl what does a 12-year-old do? And I didn't know what to do. And then he says, stop calling us uncle and auntie. From now on, we are Baba and Bibi. that's it. We're your parents. So I remember I cried so much, and one of the three brothers saw me crying and said, she's crying again. And he comes in my room, he's like, why are you crying? I already told you, they don't love you. You're like a dog to them, a pet, or like an old pair of slippers. You're not their child. You're our child. This is your rightful home. You've come back to us, and now you're gonna be a true patriotic Pakistani daughter. We are so happy to have you. We're even gonna give you a plot of land, and we're gonna call it Shamila's world. Like, a 12-year-old really cares about a plot of land. (laughs) So I start to bargain with them. I'm like, okay, I'll stay for one year. I'm a good girl. I'm cooperative, see? I can do a year, a study abroad early, and they're like, okay. And then the next day he says, maybe three years. And I start crying, I'm like, no, no, three years is too long. I want to go back. Everybody's gonna grow up. I need to know what's happening in my school. there's yearbooks to do and the clubs to join. And they're like, you're gonna do whatever happens here. And then at some point, Bibi says, you're gonna go to college here too. And I was like, no, I, I don't want to go to college here. I want to go back. And then I would cry and I would get the lecture again about they didn't love you. America is a bad place for a girl not a proper place. So at the end of August, Bibi comes to me one day and says, look, they left you here, they've gone back to the US, all four of them, you're stuck here now with us, and you're going to school next week. Part of the custody battle, part of the reason that they wanted me back is because my mom, Hannah, had eventually had two sons of her own, and that had infuriated her sister, and brother-in-law, and they were like, okay, you lied to us, you can't have children, so since you had children, now we want our daughter back. And my mom would say this, I still remember her saying this, I didn't get it at the time, she'd say, she's not a ball, I can't bounce her back to you. But that's what ended up happening. When I hear that they've gone back and I'm starting school next week, I realize this is it. I am not going back. My world is catapulted away. They hand me a chador, which is a covering, and they tell me you're gonna sit on the bus and go to school, and you're gonna cover your head. I'm like, okay. I love school. I love school because in school, I'm a celebrity because I've come from America, and they're like, do you know Tom Cruise? I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I could say anything. I make up so many stories from so many books I read, and they thought everything was true. And the bus, it smelled of like old crunchy Cheetos, And I loved that bus ride home because we would go by these fields and see like houses and buffaloes and I just liked watching all of that from my bus window and I'm like, this is cool. But when I got home, things would get bad. They became very fixated on my weight. I had to be 140 pounds because they kept talking about my marriage someday. They were gonna get me married to a top family in the country and I was gonna be a very good girl, and a very good-looking girl, and nobody wants to marry a fat girl, so they would lock the fridge. I was not allowed to snack. Every Friday, I was weighed in front of everyone, and if my weight was above 140, I was in big trouble. They would have the boys spy on me to see that I would not take any snacks from the fridge if the fridge happened to be open, and those boys were quick to run, and be like, she stole some food, she took it, and then there was a lot of you know trouble. And then they told me, uh, covering your head is not enough. Now you have to cover your face when you go out. And I was a good sport about it. I would cover my face, and only my eyes could show, which was fine. But in the summer, God, it's so hot, I would be sweating buckets. And so I would hold it like this so that I, I could breathe and then put it back on and then take it off and then put it back on. But that was the least of my worries. I was like, you know what? I can live with this because, you know, at least, you know, no one's staring at me if I'm covered. Bibi was the rule enforcer (laughs) pretty soon she told me music is bad TV is bad movies are bad she told me books are bad she took everything I had from America the first summer I lived there they let me go to the capital city Islamabad and buy a Paula Abdul and a Madonna cassette they quickly confiscated those two music is the devil's work you can't listen to that I remember opening up a newspaper in a magazine on Sundays. It was called the Sunday Times just to read something. And she'd be like, only bad girls read newspapers. Put that away. At a book fair, I got a copy of Little Women. I had a friend say, happy birthday, Shamila I stole the money from her bag. It was five rupees. And I put that inside my mattress cover. And that was the one book I had for the past six years that I lived there. I would pull it out, read it, and put it back in. She never found it. But she took everything else away. She thought my babysitter's club books were beyond ridiculous. And I couldn't explain it to her, what it was about. If she saw me singing idly, she would tell me, get up, girl, go start cooking. Go and learn some chores, because when you're married, this is what you're going to have to do. One day, I was so bored, I opened up an encyclopedia and started reading about the solar system. I think I was in eighth grade because I was just like, I need to read something. And she came home from the market and she said, what are you reading? I said, the solar system. And she says, come here, come here. This book is this big. Your brain is this big. There's no way you can absorb that information. So I'm kindly telling you to put it away and go to the kitchen and peel the carrots and the onions because we're going to teach you how to make egg rolls today. I knew she was wrong, but there was nothing I could say. At the end of eighth grade, I came home and found a bonfire in the backyard. All my photos, all the letters from my teachers and my friends in the U.S., all my books, the stories that I had written, the essays I had written, everything was being burnt away, and they made me stand there and watch it. And like, this is what happens to girls who are bad. So give up on all these ideas and come back to being a good girl, a proper girl. The quest to make me proper never ended. I don't even know what the proper girl looks like, but they had a vision and they were determined to make me into it. I like to explain things, so I try to explain, but you know, this is what I'm thinking and this is what I'm feeling. And very quickly, I realized that that's going to get me hit don't remember the first time I got hit but when I was around 13 it started and I still remember me trying to explain something very earnestly and being slapped or being hit or being punched. I remember being kicked and I remember trying to sneak into their room and make a phone call to a friend to ask her what I should do about something and finding out and the punishment for that was a golf club on my back. I couldn't move for the day after, but 15-year-old bodies heal really fast, so I was able to move again, and I would think, okay, well, this happened, but it won't ever happen again, except it kept happening. My baba was so unpredictable. One minute, he would say, you're my lovely daughter. I'm so happy you're back. I love you so much, and the next minute, I would just be saying something, and suddenly, the floodgates would open. In the six years I lived there, they never called me by my name. They did not like the name Shamila. They wanted to change it. That's the one thing I refused. I said, over and over, you're not going to change my name. So they started calling me the word Janae, which means girl. So it was always girl on a good day. On a bad day, it was crazy girl, lazy girl, whore, you name it. That was me. I would get in trouble for praying at the wrong time. I got pulled off the prayer mat by my hair and yanked off because I prayed at the wrong time. After all this happened, one day I remember being on the bus and looking at this boy, and he had green eyes and a little goatee, and he was really cute, so I wrote this letter to a friend about him, and she caught me, and she found a letter, and she raised this squeegee to hit me really hard, except by mistake, it cut through my face, and my face tore open. And I didn't know what had happened at the time then I saw one drop, two drops, three drops, and this blood starts coming, and she's like, Oh my God, oh my God. And then she's helping me wash my face and she said, you have such a big tongue. If you would just keep quiet, none of this would have ever happened. Your tongue is a yard long. If you would just keep your tongue quiet, none of this would ever happen. 16 microscopic stitches later, they fixed this face. And every time I would put a mark on the calendar, I'd be like, this will never happen to me again. And when it would happen, I'd be like, just have to try harder, just have to try harder. And then it will never happen to me again. This went on for six years. And as I got older, and the marriage chances got closer, and the idea of putting me out in society, kind of like a debut from the 1800s, kept creeping up, it got worse, and worse, and worse. And there was no escape for me, besides my book in the mattress, and my writing. I would go in the bathroom, lock the door. During the afternoon siesta, when everyone was sleeping, it was really hot, but I would write stories and poems and letters on a piece of paper, and they have fountain pens there, so I wash off the ink with the hose, crumple up the paper, and throw it out the window so that no one would catch me and punish me. Of course, they had no idea what I was doing there, and would start banging at some point, what are you doing in there? What's happening in there? And I'd come out be like, nothing. Just washing my face. My friends were the things that also helped me get through, and I learned how to have really good friends. And one of my friends had an older brother who was very cute. And she would tell me about him and tell me stories and be like, someday you can get married to him. And I kind of fell in this like story, like yeah, someday I will marry him. And so she was like, you should tell your parents that you want to get married to him. I knew better than that, I didn't really say it, but eventually they asked me, you've been acting different lately, is there something going on? And I said, I like someone. And that was the worst punishment I ever got. So I'm 18 years old, the worst is yet to come. One night, I'm just sleeping and I feel a hand on my face so I shh. It was my oldest brother. And I don't want to go into it after that. But that went on for a long time afterwards. I'm pulled out of school, they decide she needs to get married because she's going to get out of control and we have to marry her off fast. So one morning in July, I'm making roti, which is bread for breakfast and i bring it to baba and he says it's lopsided you crazy lazy girl it's lopsided good for nothing you can't even make bread right go to your room and stay there think about what you've done so i go to my room and they kept the door open because they had to watch me at all times i'm thinking okay i don't know what to do anymore i give up so i put out the prayer mat It's not even time to pray, and I just start praying over and over. I'm like, oh, God, please make my life useful. Please make my life useful. Please make my life useful. It's like a trance. I keep praying over and over, and the ceiling fan's going, and it's really hot, and I'm just praying over and over. Please make my life useful. Please make my life useful. I can't live like this anymore. The very next day, my grandfather, Babaji, says, you know, I was thinking about it. I'm going to go to Bethesda and visit my other daughter. And I heard the word Bethesda, and something registered in my brain, but like, kind of like an imaginary, faraway place I just read about once. I'm like, oh, yeah, Bethesda. And suddenly, out of nowhere, BB says, take this girl with you. And I'm like, wait, what? And she's like, take this girl with you. Now, the year before, they had talked about me going, but then changed their minds. So I was like, this is just, you know, she's talking. But then they call... My dad in the U.S., and for the first time in six years, they hand me the phone. They're like, talk to him, ask him to buy you a ticket. So I get on the phone. I'm like, Dad? And he's like, Shamila, is that you? And I'm amazed at what it sounds like to hear my voice being spoken, my name being spoken. I, I didn't know what to do. I'm just savoring that moment. And then finally I say, yeah, it's me. Buy me a ticket. They want me to come home. So then everything moves so fast. There's like passports and visas and applications and going to the capital city and trying to get in the embassy and a chaperone, of course, because I can't be trusted to fly alone because God knows what I'll do in the plane. So I have to have a chaperone. Finally, all of that is done. And I keep thinking, they tried to take away everything from me, but they couldn't take away my faith and they couldn't take away my mind and they couldn't take away my writing and they can't take away the fact that I still have hope. So I got on that plane, and as it took off, I started crying, because even though they said this is a pre-wedding vacation, I knew that I was not gonna come back for a very, very, very long time, and I was gonna miss parts of it. Parts of it were beautiful, parts of it were good, parts of it were my home. So I arrived back at JFK on July 4th, 1996, Independence Day. Will Smith movie came out that day too. <laughs> And I had a long braid and a heavy accent, and my dad and my brother came up from here to pick me up. And I'm looking at my youngest brother, who's now in middle school, and I'm like, how are you? And he says, I'm good. And I'm like, good? I can not ask him if he's a good boy or a bad boy. Why is he saying he's good? Why doesn't he say, I'm fine, thank you? So there was a lot to learn. I still have the outfit that I came in, it's in a suitcase. Twenty years later, I'm a social worker and a therapist, I've worked in Baltimore City in child welfare. I've worked in Austin, Texas. I've done work with community education. I teach a class at Montgomery College in Germantown, Maryland. And I have a private practice where I see individuals, couples, and groups. And I try to help people understand about abuse and neglect. And I try to help people understand that bad things do happen to us, but there's a, maybe a reason, maybe not, but there's something to look forward to. There's hope. There's something good that can come. Something to look up to. These days, my life is very, very useful. So it's taken me 20 years to get to this place, to stand here before you today, but here I am. Thank you.
9: It's here where our pieces fall in place Any Rain softly kisses us on the face Anywhere means we're running We can sleep and see them coming Where we drift and call it dreaming We can weep and call it singing warmer than blood Where we see enough to follow We can hear when we are hollow Where we keep the light we're given We can lose and call it living Where the sun Isn't only sinking fast Every night Knows how long it's supposed to last Where the time Of our lives is all we have, and we get a chance to say before we ease away. For all the love you've left behind, you can have.
4: So it was the first day of summer after my sophomore year of high school, and uh, at this point in my life, I was a total loser. Uh, But what I lacked in an ability to talk to girls, I made up for in acne. And so this particular day, the first day of summer, was a really big deal, because it was going to be the first summer in which I had the house all to myself. My sister had just moved away to college, both my parents worked during the day, so I had total freedom. Like, this was going to be my summer. So that first morning, I wanted to do something really special to mark the occasion, and I was like, hmm, well, I could jerk off, but that's not really special because I did it all the time. But then I remembered something. I'd spent the entire school year sitting around the lunchroom table with a bunch of other virgin dudes exclusively talking about girls and sex and all the fucking we weren't doing. That was the constant topic of conversation. And it's a weird thing too with teenage boys, because when you're talking about masturbating and girls and everything, there's almost this sort of, like, aspirational quality to the conversation too. Like, I remember one time my buddy Rob came in proudly one day, and he was like, Dude, I beat off twice in, like, ten minutes. Like, I came twice. And I remember being so intimidated, like, holy shit, like, years from now, when some girl finally wants to fuck Rob, She's gonna be so impressed that he can like go twice in ten minutes with the other kids. Who's like, yeah, like I was jerking off and I lasted like forever. And it's like this sort of weird, sort of like doomsday prepping situation where we're not just jerking off in the moment. We're all kind of gearing up for this thing that's eventually coming for us. And so you're kind of running around lost, and you're like, well. Who are these fuck machines? Like, are these kids for real? Or like, who's got a good lead? And like, I was just such a little insecure kid. Like, I had barely kissed a girl. I barely had armpit hair. Like, my insecurities just ran so deep. So you're just kind of sitting at this table sort of like gathering all the information you can. And it was in one of these conversations that uh, at some point my buddy Rob told me that uh, this guy, Nikki Pellini, who, by the way, um, I feel like I should always change his name when I tell the story, but it's such a fucking perfectly Jersey name. Like, this guy did an assault charge, like, ten years ago. He cracked some guy's skull open. But I still, really, it's hard to find a better replacement. Anyway, okay, so, he was a bad kid, for sure, but one who had had verifiable sex with girls. So, Nikki told Rob, who told me that Nikki said, Rob, listen, man, I've had sex. Like, I have fucked girls, and I'm telling you, if you take a grapefruit, cut a hole in it, and microwave it for 30 seconds, it feels just like vagina. So, I'm mulling it over in my house, and I'm like, huh, no, no way. Also, like... Uh, I grew up in a straight-up Wonder Bread and Fish Sticks kind of house, so something like grapefruit was so exotic, it might as well have been fucking foie gras. But so, you know, just in case, I go down to the kitchen, and there must have been some sort of like weird fad diet or fucking segment on Oprah about grapefruit like being a superfood or something. I don't know, it was the 90s. But I go down to the kitchen, I look in the fruit basket, and sure enough, there are two huge grapefruits in there. And so I'm looking at this and I'm like, no, I would never do this. Also, like, it doesn't make sense. Like, this kid probably just made this up because, like, there's acid in grapefruits and, like, this is just sort of a weird kamikaze mission. Like, something could go wrong. This isn't great. So, I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, you know, this is a problem, but also this kid says it could feel like real sex, but, like, I'm never gonna do this, so I'm just staring at this grapefruit like, no, no way. This is ridiculous. No, I could never take this risk. I will never, ever do this. Yes, I am absolutely, totally doing this. So, I cut a hole in the grapefruit. I microwave it for 30 seconds. I take it upstairs, I lay a towel on my bed, because I'm a gentleman, and so I get in the zone, I lay down, I stick my D in this grapefruit, and it was amazing. My 16-year-old brain had never experienced anything like this before. It was unbelievable. It's like I was suddenly on another planet. I just sort of close my eyes and just sort of put this thing upon me, it's that weird moment where you're like, is this going to be cool, is this going to be fine, and then it goes on, you're like, oh, this is like the finest thing that's ever happened. Like, there's just this sort of like electric jolt through your body, and like, your entire life has been talking about sex and how good it could be, and you had no idea, and then you get there, and this weird fucking grapefruit graces you with its presence, and you have this moment where you're like, oh, we were right all along. This is the most perfect thing. This is the best version of humanity. And so I'm just going at it and I'm just destroying this poor grapefruit. I burst through the other side and it's like splitting in half in my hands so I'm trying to hold it together and it's just a total mess. I'm just sort of like vice gripping it on and it's spitting juice everywhere and you can smell it. It's just like 30 seconds of total mayhem. It's horrible. By the time I'm done, this grapefruit doesn't even look like I fucked it. It looks like I got in my car and ran it over. When I finish, I immediately get panic-stricken. What if somebody finds out about this? Because, like, there's just no way you can be the kid who fucked a grapefruit and walk around school and, like, everyone's cool with that. Like, what if there's a world in which, like, somebody's looking in a window or somebody heard me downstairs or something? Kids have gotten down in this town for much less. There was a rumor that this kid, Matt, who lived in the neighborhood, had jerked off his dog once, and, like, he couldn't live that down. That followed him to the end of his days. If somebody found out that I actually fucked a grapefruit... What would my parents say to me? What is that therapy session? So I'm immediately, I'm like, no, no one can ever find out about this. The secret dies with me. So I get all forensic about it. I gather all the evidence, the towel, the grapefruit that is just horrible right now. And I throw it all in a trash bag and dispose of it in a secure location. That's my chore. I take care of the trash, nobody else is gonna find it. But still, I am sweating bullets for the rest of the day. Nobody can ever, ever, ever find out about this. As if there's a world in which like, I'd be at dinner with my parents that night and they'd be like, oh, we're missing a grapefruit. Richie, did you fuck it? So, we have dinner that night, and the grapefruit never comes up. Next day, same thing. Not a word about it. Third day, still nothing. I tell no one, not even Rob, not even Nikki Pellini, none of the dudes I know. I don't say a single word. And slowly, day by day, my paranoia fades as I realize that I have maybe totally gotten away with this whole thing. But something else is happening too. Because I suddenly feel like a real man. I didn't fuck a girl, but I fucked a thing that some kids said was just like fucking a girl, and for me, that was enough. Because I swear to God, this is totally true. Once I fucked that grapefruit, like a creepy little grapefruit fucker, I felt so mature, I finally switched from tighty-whities to boxers. Or like, I'd be hanging out with my dude friends, and I would just sort of look around smugly and think, these poor fucking fools. They haven't lived a life. But me? I've been to the mountaintop. And so about a week or two passes, and I'm still just on cloud nine with this thing. I'm suddenly the smartest person I know. Nobody found out about it, and I have totally convinced myself that this grapefruit experiment has, in fact, somehow made me better at sex than all the other virgins I know who have not fucked a thing that came out of the microwave. I'm suddenly this pioneer. I may have zero actual experience with girls, but now I have, like... Cut to the head of the line as far as dudes who are awesome at fucking. In my brain, it's like me and like LL Cool J. We're the guys. <laughs> and so this is going on and I'm feeling great and I've gotten away with murder. And one morning, I'm like, you know what? It's time to take another shot at the title. I had to chase that dragon, man. I was going back. So I run downstairs to the kitchen, check the fruit bowl, but there's no grapefruit but there is an orange. So I'm like, fuck it, same difference, let's do this. So I go through my little preparation ritual, I cut a hole in the orange, I microwave it for 30 seconds, I take it upstairs, I lay a towel in my bed, I get in the zone, I stick my D in this orange, and it is at this moment that I realize an orange is about half the size of a grapefruit. As such, when you microwave it for 30 seconds, it gets as hot as the fucking sun. And I am immediately struck with this white hot searing pain I'm like oh no, oh no, 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 oh Jesus fucking Christ, what am I doing? As if it only had just occurred to me that this is a horrible idea. Every alarm is going off in my brain. It is this total system shock, and I'm losing my mind like, is my dick on fire? Is it still going to be there when I look down? Do you have any idea how many nerve endings are in your genitals? The answer is way too many to fuck piping hot fruit. So my body locks up, and I'm just writhing in my sheets like, oh fuck, how bad is this? Is this Neosporin bad, or is this emergency room? Do I have to call 911 and say, Hi, I burned my dick. Send help. And they're like, what happened? And I'm like, I fucked an orange. And they're like, why was the orange hot? And I'm like, cause we were out of grapefruit. So I scream and whip the orange across the room. And then I'm just holding my dick like a buddy in a war movie. Like, my best friend, I have betrayed you. My sweet prince, what have I done? And in this moment, every ounce of manliness I had gained that summer vanishes. All of my shame comes flooding back, and I would not be inside of anything else for another three years. <sighs>
5: I wanted to share this with you because I believe every man should get grapefruited. When you grapefruit your man it's going to feel as if you are giving him head and fucking him at the same time. So what you need to do is you need to of course have a grapefruit. What you want to do is make sure the grapefruit is room temperature. All you have to do is put it in warm water. Do not microwave it, do not boil it. Once it gets to that temperature you want to take a knife, put a hole in the middle of the grapefruit approximately the size of your man's penis. Now when you grapefruit your man. He has to be blindfolded. Say, baby, you know what? Tonight, I want to do something a little freakier. I want to suck your dick blindfolded. Your man will blindfold himself if he knows he's going to get some head. Once he's nice and erect, what you're going to do is replace the grapefruit from your mouth. You're going to twist up and down on his shaft and suck the head at the same time. (laughs) (sighs) <sighs> and that's the grapefruit technique I got family originally from Flatbush, so I'm down. In December of 2013, I was living with two fantastic Jewish dykes out in Flushing. And I was barely making it as a sex educator because talking to people about sex is not the most lucrative career one can come up with. And I had been working for a sex website. Basically, you know, do you remember Adult Friend Finder? Remember those motherfuckers? Yeah, they made a lot of money. And so my job at the time for them was writing copy and searching for the most magnificent dick pics to put up on their website. And so I had done this for years, basically working at a place where, like, if you aren't looking at dick, they know you're fucking around. (laughs) So so it's like, you're looking at like, oh, lolcats, lolcats, and then your boss comes, and you're like, oh, dick, 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 dick. dick." (laughs) Like, that was my job. And I made a shit ton of money. So coming from being like a poor black kid from the projects to making the most money I had made in my life, looking at dick was kind of amazing and so i spent a couple of years then running around the country and running around all over the world like to europe and australia and every place talking about sex talking about kink as a black woman who also identified as being submissive and being into kink and bdsm there weren't a lot of role models out there for me so i had to kind of like be my own pervert like the two or three other submissive black women that i had met in my life we're like amazing stalwarts of the kink community. And then I was like, yes, there need to be more of us. There need to be more kinky black women out there doing the kinky black woman thing Ooh, yes. for us, for the people. Why aren't they out there? And then they're like, if you don't see what you want, be the change. And they're like, fuck. <laughs> I don't want to be the change sometimes I just want to like, you know, fucking chill and watch the change. But no. <laughs> So I had really dedicated myself to this and I had spent years pursuing this dream and in December of 2013, I was down to my last thousand bucks in the bank and I was living with two friends and they were magnificent, they were wonderful, but this was not going to be the rest of my fucking life and I had tried for so many years to find a dominant partner and the thing is this. Like, a lot of people when they meet me are kind of shocked I'm submissive. (laughs) I have no fucking idea why this is so hard for them to believe. And I would meet these guys and they'd be like, well, you don't act very submissive. And I'm like, well, you don't act very dominant because if you did, I'd be kneeling and sucking your dick, wouldn't I? (laughs) So I sought. The dominant type for me and I had dated a couple people I had a couple really great relationships but nothing that ever really gelled everyone was either like super polyamorous and while I don't mind playing around with other people I really wanted that heart bond connection with one person and that was a little bit hard to find in the King community and I had compromised so much and let me tell you compromising is great until you grind up against your limit and you're like oh this is no longer compromise this is me actually giving up on my fucking dreams which I did not want to fucking do So in this shower, I had one of these conversations with God, flying spaghetti monster, the universe, whoever the fuck you want to call it, your higher power, right? And I said, look, you know what? I have put myself out there. I have had faith. I have taken the leap. I left San Francisco. I grew up in New York. I moved out to the West Coast, did the West Coast thing, came back, New York received me like a lover, who kind of hates you, but still wants to, like, rage fuck you, because you know how the city is. (laughs) Came back home, and New York was like, ah, get over here, you little bitch, take it. (laughs) I was like, thank you, thank you, Manhattan, thank you. (laughs) And Manhattan's like, oh, no, 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 you're going to live in Flushing. (laughs) You'll like it. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> and I said, you know, I did the shit. I did the manifesting your power shit that they tell you to do. And I'm still fucking lonely. And you know what's interesting is that there are lots of people who feel great about being single people who feel self-actualized when they're on their own and i was not one of those people and it took a lot for me to say to myself i am happier when i'm with someone i'm a submissive i like to submit i like to do things for people that turns me on that gets my pussy wet and my nipples hard doing for myself only goes so far but i figured you know what at some point you have to be realistic and so in this shower, in December of 2013, I had this conversation and I said, hey, you know what? I've done it. I did the shit. I am going to say, you know what? Fuck this trying to be a sex educator. Fuck all this bullshit. I have many skills. I'm going to go get myself a nice fat corporate job, rake in six figures, chill out with the sex educating thing. Being a pervert is obviously not that fucking lucrative for me at this time. I'm just going to move on. January 1st, 2014, new life starting. Unless, unless universe, you happen to send me the perfect dominant. (laughs) I want the one. I want the one that we all been fantasizing about. I want the one who wants to take care of me. I want the one who sees me. I want the one who doesn't give a shit. No. I want the one who not only doesn't give a shit that I'm bossy, loud-ass bitch, I want the one who thinks that's the hottest fucking shit on the goddamn planet. That's the dominant I want. I want the person who sees me and thinks, Holy shit, can I get me some of that? That's the one I need. And I was just playing fuck you with the universe because I knew, A, that person didn't exist, B, they certainly weren't going to be interested in me, and C, I was not going to find them between now and the end of the year. So I figured that that was a safe bet. And then, on OkCupid, of all websites, (laughs) I get a message from someone with the handle Spicy Spirit Love.
3: And I'm like,
5: Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) The fuck does that even mean? (laughs) So I open this profile, and they have several strikes against them. Strike one no picture. Please remember, I have spent years working on adult websites, adult dating websites. I got my criteria shit on lock. No picture, some wrong. Strike two, their profile is not completely filled out. I'm going, okay, it gives you so many opportunities to show off how awesome you are, and you have filled out, like, two things. <laughs> Strike three, some awkward syntax in their profile. And I'm like, oh, dude, you couldn't, like, use grammar and spell check? Come on. <sighs> so then I'm like, all right, I open the email, and I read the following. Hi, Melina. Wow. Your profile is great. Theater, sub, unusual spiritual fodder, curvy fat black chick, trembling flower of submission. These were all things in my profile. I am older than you want, 60, but I have a strong German-Austrian accent. I had indicated that I had a thing for accents. I specifically said British accents, but I'm flexible. <laughs> I am strongly interested in BDSM with some experience. I am a top, and I do not drink any alcohol. I'm a recovering alcoholic, so this is nice. I trust in the definition of Robert Mapplethorpe SM means sex and magic. I'm like, oh hoo, hoo. <laughs> I am an artist, very successful, probably a member of the top 10 or 20 in my genre in the world. Crazy, developing new spaces, especially interested in the dark sides of emotions. I would like to tame you. Warm wishes, Georg. i'm like okay this explains the syntactical awkwardness english is his second language it also explains why he doesn't have a picture up he has some notoriety he's trying to be cool and i'm thinking okay the magnificent thing is that he read my profile and responded to shit within my profile and why motherfuckers don't do this as a default is baffling to me <laughs> It's not hard, read the shit, respond to the shit, get the shit. (laughs) How fucking hard is that? So I wrote back and I said something flowery and whatever and I was like, well, you don't have any pictures of yourself, so blah, blah, blah. Within 47 minutes, he had sent me back three of the worst selfies I have ever seen in my life. Everything you don't do in a selfie. Chin from the bottom, hair all fucked up, like, like, not in focus. And I'm looking at this and saying, if this guy is so into this moment that he just stopped and didn't even give a shit. I was like, I'm gonna send this shitty, shitty selfie. I was like, this guy can get the date. So he invites me over to his house and as crazy as this seems, I'm like, I'm a Craigslist veteran. If you give out your home address to someone and I happen to know already shit about you and I told him, I said, look, I got two lesbians in Queens who will come for you. (laughs) if you fuck with me and he was like all right well yes yes I understand (laughs) so I went over to his house and I had this moment where I get off the elevator on the top floor of this apartment building overlooking the fucking Hudson and I look out of the window on one side and I can see the projects where I grew up And I had to do that thing, like, and if you grew up here in New York, you know what I'm talking about, where I'm like, don't fall in love with the apartment. (laughs) And I was like, it's cool, because what if he's a jerk? And I'm like, look at that view. (laughs) fucking penthouse apartment (laughs) and he opens the door and there he is this like 60 year old white guy with his like mid-length blonde hair and his glasses and he's wearing like jeans and a t-shirt I'm like you couldn't get dressed up (laughs) but it's cool and he made me dinner and wasn't that lovely And we sat and we ate and we chatted and he was asking me all sorts of questions about what it was like growing up in New York and we were chatting about this and that and the other thing and of course the topic of like racism and how horrible white people are came up. (laughs) I like to get that out of the way if I'm thinking about fucking a white person. (laughs) I need to know that when I say, fuck the man, they are like, yes, fuck us all. that's what I need and I remember telling him briefly a story about you know when I was a kid and the first time I experienced racism and some little kid you know called me a nigger in the playground and I look over at him and I'm not even shitting you he's like crying he's like how could someone do that to a child how could someone and I'm like now I'm kind of turned on so I'm like oh <laughs> he might like actually be kind of woke and that's kind of hot for me so I'm like okay, it's cool. <laughs> school whatever so we're chatting we're not even through the first fucking course which is some delightful sushi and he comes around the table and like full-on puts his hand down my blouse and it's like (laughs) in a move I have come to discover is the wolf style (laughs) and I'm sitting there like okay fine it's been a while since I've had any sex let's just go ahead and do this we retire to the bedroom where he proceeds to eat the pussy like it was a pot of neck bones and he had not seen meat in a year. I am not even kidding you. And everyone's like, oh, that's so great. I'm like, yeah, until you are dehydrated. And you're like, I need some Gatorade, some fucking, some salt tablets like i was literally like i didn't even know what to do with myself like my leg was doing that thing where it's twitching you know what i'm talking about too where your leg's just like nah, 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 nah. and i'm finally just like after i shit you not you can ask my friends four hours i'm like you need to get off i literally have my foot on his shoulder and he's like you do not like anymore <laughs> And I'm like, I'd like more, but I'd also like to A, walk again, B, live, C, not collapse into a pile of brown dust. (laughs) So we fool around, everything's amazing. He invites me back the next day, and I'm like, okay, that's cool. Date number two, he says to me, I've been thinking about us having a master-slave relationship. I'm like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. He said, I have written up an outline for a contract. Mm Hmm. (laughs) Okay, mister, like I've never actually had a master-slave relationship talking to me, the pervert, like the executive pervert, (laughs) who has traveled around the world doing this shit professionally, show me what you got. So he takes out this list and he starts saying, well, I would need you basically to be available to serve me at all times, so then it would be my responsibility to take care of you. I'm like, okay. He's like, I understand you do not have health care. I will take care of that for you. (laughs) (laughs) I understand that you might have financial needs. I will make sure that you have a savings account and that we put money away for you every month. I Understand that you are involved in the sex community. I will need for you to find partners for us so that we may all have sex together (laughs) My work takes me all over the world so I would need for you to be available to travel anywhere at any time I might want to have sex with men too, so you have to be okay with that. And I'm like, w- <laughs> can we go back to the healthcare? <laughs> as crazy as this seems, pretty much within a week of this meeting, I have moved into his house. And he was traveling and he was like, here's the keys to my house. Did I mention it's a two-bedroom fucking penthouse apartment? And every time I get off the elevator and I look back to the neighborhood where I grew up, the Johnson fucking Projects, and the fucking doors open (laughs) up to the elevator. And I'm like, beans don't burn in the kitchen. (laughs) Took a whole lot of trying just to get up that hill. Now we're up in the big leagues. Get not turn it back as long as we live You and me, baby Ain't nothing wrong with that We're moving on, on. <laughs> To the east side <laughs> We finally got a piece of the pie And if you had told little black me 40 years ago, that you were going to be happy with a collar around your neck that signifies your submission to someone, that you were going to be the most well taken care of by someone who sees you as the most precious and beautiful jewel that has ever walked the earth. If you had told me when I was rejected by people for being too fat, that I would be with someone who not only thought it was okay that I was fat, but who stared at my belly like dinner was on (laughs) and could not get enough of my body as it is, I would have said, get the fuck out. (laughs) The thing is that it is so easy for us freaks and perverts and weirdos to feel like we will never find that other person. This guy was 60 years old when we first met and one of the things he always tells people is, don't wait until you are as old as I am to find your true calling and to be who you are. And I say, wait if that's what it takes. (laughs) If that's what it takes for you to truly find the person who is for you, fucking do that shit. Because the appreciation and love that we have for each other is worth every minute of every year that we both spent waiting for each other. It's fucking magnificent. And we're both worth it. Sir, I love you so much. to add that I am Melina Lee Williams Haas on Facebook and really fucking seriously if you think it might be hot to fuck an old middle-aged pudgy couple come and get some of this he speaks German so naughty politically incorrect play is in play to give a big shout out to all of the perverts who are here who share their stories today and everyone who's here showing their faces and let me say especially a shout out to the perverts of color because i fucking see you and i know how it is to feel like everyone is telling you that like this is a white people thing i'm like Don't get to deprive me of the good shit. Yes, it's freaky, and yes, it's fucked up, and yes, it is magically delicious. So get your freak on, brothers and sisters. Thank you.
4: Meaning of this thing called love. I up on this is something you can get up a hug and a kiss. Come in, yeah.
1: you sexy mother. Come in, babe. Yeah. you sexy mother. That is all for this week's episode of Risk, my friends. This has been the best of Risk. Volume number 13, and we just heard from the incredible Melina Williams Haas. You can find her on Twitter at Melina. That's M O L L E N A. Before that, we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr, called The Grapefruit Technique. Before that, Rich Monahan with that grapefruit story. And before that, a little something from Iron and Wine. Now, if you live anywhere near Pittsburgh, we are coming there, finally, we're returning to Pittsburgh on April 21st. We don't have the venue set yet, but listen, we need you to pitch us your stories. The theme that night is embarrassing, and the alternate themes, if the word embarrassing doesn't bring anything to mind for you, are misfits or traps. So if you live anywhere near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and you think you might want to share a story with us at that April 21st show, go to the submissions page at risk-show.com and send your pitch to pitches at risk-show.com. There's all the instructions there for how to come up with a good pitch, how to prep it, how to email us there. And we are looking forward to hearing your stories now, don't forget the Risk book will soon be here. A few dozen of our very favorite stories that have been on the show, and several stories that you will never have heard on the show before, plus interviews with the storytellers. And it's really remarkable to see how different these things are on the page. They have a new power from just being on the page, so go to theriskbook.com and pre-order now. Also, if you're in Los Angeles, come out to see us live on March 17th at the Bootleg Theater going to be a great show on March 17th with Brian Babylon, Sovereign Sire, Matt Kirschen, Sarah Faith Alterman, and Riley Silverman. Fantastic show. On March 22nd, we're back at Caveat in New York City on the Lower East Side. Uh, that show is going to feature Amy Gordon, Fran Tirado from Food for Thought, Jezebel Express, and Gigi Lee, another fantastic show. That's March 22nd at Caveat in New York City. Go to risk slash tour to find out when and where our live shows are happening. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.